Hi guys, welcome back to the To All The People podcast. I thought this would be a good way for you guys to get to know me. I had a couple people come on here and they were just like, I can't believe you haven't even did a get to know you yet. So I thought, you know what, let's go ahead and do it. Now, I've done a lot of talking. You know, you just heard a couple of great podcasts in our previous videos and, you know, podcasts, but I haven't really told you about me, your host. I've always struggled about talking about myself or discussing my story, but to give you an idea of who I am, I am an Aquarius. My rising is Gemini, according to one of my close friends, Preston, who is obsessed with horoscope. Please don't compare me to Donald Trump. <laughs> I'm the oldest. I'm the first in my family to graduate from college and the first to start my own podcast. So welcome. I also live in Texas where it's been a rising 108 degrees nearly every day from June to August. But most importantly, I am a young lady still trying to figure out how to understand these big dreams of mine that can oftentimes feel so incredibly overwhelming. To tell you a little bit more about my whole social media life, I mean, if you look me up on TikTok right now and you type in Janelle.Roberts, you'll see me displaying black women in luxury, you know, me traveling the world, eating great food, croissants, and going on dates. But my story hasn't always been this way. I love displaying black women in luxury. I love displaying um, a different quality of life because I don't know, for some reason, I feel like I'm breaking the stigma that black women and women of color in general um, deserve to be taken care of. We deserve to to live a nice life and we deserve to be spoiled and, and treated like queens and princesses. That's just my, own, my opinion, especially trying to survive and navigate a world that doesn't necessarily allow us to do it. So that's my focal point. Although I post luxury, although I post a certain type of lifestyle, my story hasn't always been this way. My actual earliest childhood memory wasn't a positive one at all. You know, it included violence, fighting, and screams. I grew up believing that men were a certain way. I grew up respecting my mother. You know, my mother is an artist like me. She put me in theater and took me to acting auditions as early as I could remember. I even tried out for Disney once. <laughs> Isn't that funny? But I ain't gonna lie, I would have been a fire-ass Disney kid. You can't tell me anything else. I, I would have went in there and killed it. You know, there was one evening my mom pulled my sisters and us out of school and had this grand awakening of moving to Atlanta for this grand opportunity. My mom has a very eccentric personali personality. And I'm not gonna lie, listen, I was, I was down for the move to Atlanta. I was ready to leave hot ass Texas and follow my dreams of becoming a child star. I also won't lie, I also hated school. My mom clearly would be the one writing the scripts while I'll be acting, despite us not having a home lined up in, in going to two different schools in the short four months we were in Atlanta. I think that hardship kind of shaped me. Now that I think about it, and now that I think about my podcast and the fact that it's called The FOD, maybe season one of this podcast is dedicated to my mother. Maybe the correlations I feel to Shonda Rhimes are the ones that I felt for her. My mother would put plays together and I would play four different characters. <laughs> I learned how to change out of a costume quick. I'm not even kidding. One time I played an old man, then I played a young lady. Like It was a whole thing. Early on, my love for acting shifted and I grew into loving writing. One beautiful thing that I think about 
being a black creator or a woman of color that creates, because I also want to include women of color in this conversation, is that there are so many things to build on. And the cool thing about being a woman of color that creates is like there is enough room at the table for us. The market is so oversaturated with people that don't look like us. So there's plenty of room at the table for us to start something new and do something new. We just have to kind of find the table, which is sometimes, not even sometimes, it's frustrating all the time. My way of thinking, my way of being a creative, my way of loving life is 100% stemmed from my mom pushing me to do whatever it was that I need to do. So I am really grateful for that. I want to highlight abuse. I don't want to go too in depth about it because I want this podcast to be positive and I want it to be happy and I want you guys to feel connected. When the abuse at home got worse, um, we never had a place to stay. So I would write. I wrote my first novel when I was 13. It was an interracial love story that I keep changing every two years because I keep getting older. I've, I've actually deleted it four or five times in my life just so I could have something to do. I keep saying all the time, Janelle, this, this story has to, to it has to have a timeline. Like after reading Colleen Hoover and, and the seven um, husbands of Evelyn Hugo, I'm like, damn, the writing style is different. I used to love Stephanie Myers and Twilight and, and listening to cheesy shit like that and reading it. I, I honestly was a fan, but the writing style has completely changed. I wrote to escape the abuse at home. I wrote to escape my stepfather's abuse. I wrote to escape my mo- my mother's mental health plummeting. I wrote to cope, and I learned early on that madness is triggered by trauma, and if you're a creative who doesn't create, you go mad. That is something that I've 100% realized. I will repeat it again. I wrote to cope. And I learned early on that madness is triggered by trauma. And if you're a creative who doesn't create, you go mad. It, it's seen so many times throughout our history. I don't really want to too much dive deep into like the abuse that I endured at home. But if you grew up in an abusive household and had someone yelling and got beaten for basically everything and anything, then you know. If you you have a parental figure that was abused and they finally escaped that situation, you kind of know the impact that it has on them. And so abuse is contagious, just like narcissism is. Back to the storyboard. My time in Atlanta, we've moved to Atlanta now, we're on the Atlanta path, was cut short. When we slid off the road into a tree, my baby sister crushed her leg having to get a fixator. She eventually spent her middle school years underneath hats that were too big and a walker with a bar hanging out of her leg. Don't worry now, she's better. She's honestly the baddest thing walking. You can't tell her nothing at this point, but she is very cute, I'll give her that. My other sister, she punctured her spleen in her kidney and she couldn't stop peeing blood. This is the first time I ever saw my mom cry. Life was really scary then, and I was most concerned for my sister, the middle child, because we didn't know if she was going to get better. We're 11 months apart, my middle sister and I. We grew up really close and told everyone who didn't even ask that we were Irish twins. Her injuries were substantial, but by the grace of God, her body miraculously healed itself. Because of the accident, we were forced to leave Atlanta, a place where we went to follow our dreams and, and be these great people and do what Tyler Perry is doing, you know. You have the Rags to Riches story, and then you hear Tyler Perry make it. Like, come on now. How many black people felt inspired by that? I did. But when we left Atlanta, the homelessness got worse. You know, we often slept in cars and hotels, and my high school career was me trying my hardest to not be seen. 
I was so quiet. I was so to myself. I was a loner and I just wasn't confident and I still struggle with trying to be confident. You know, it was a power play. It was a very weird, mentally taxing power dynamic. How ironic my sisters and I were homeless teens attending one of the wealthiest high schools in the state of Texas. You'll hear me throughout this podcast talking about attending a PWI. I attended a PWI in college and also attended a PWI in high school. I'm going to school with kids driving Range Rovers and BMWs and, and my mom doesn't have a car. I'm going to school with kids having this and that. Having, I remember going into girls' rooms and being like, oh my God, you have your own room. Like I literally did not have my own room until I went to um, college. I had my own room one time. It was very, very short-lived. It was maybe like four or five months, but... I never had my own room. I always shared. Or sometimes we didn't even have rooms. We would just have like one big open space and it would just be all four of us in there. Crazy. Let's let's go ahead and dive deep. I don't want to ponder too much about the homeless blip because we're going to get more into that further on. But I do want to talk about going to college and my experiences going to college. And if I can help any person in college right now, if you're a first-generation college graduate or if you're someone that you know, has a lot of weight on them to succeed and do well, then this is for you. I had never toured AU. Like, I never toured American University. I literally Googled the best journalism school in the U.S. When I thought of journalism, I thought of writing stories and, and, and crazy books, as mentioned before. American University was all about broadcasting. But I still went. I was like, I'm getting out of here. I ran away from home and I ran to school. I knew if I was going to leave, I wasn't going to let it be because of a relationship or, or something like that. I knew I was going to leave to elevate myself and to uplift myself and to empower myself. I stayed home a year. I saved some money. This is before I went to college. I worked 14-hour shifts at Studio Movie Grill. I, I can't go back to that place now. I just can't. I dated a shitty boy. I went to community college for a year, maintained a 4.0 GPA at the community college, applied to as many colleges as I could. I was a financial aid kid, so the applications were free. So I'm taking advantage of that shit. You feel me? I'm taking full advantage of it. <laughs> AU was the first to say yes to me. So I went. I, I actually ran. I ran. My mom dropped me off at American University. She gave me $20. That's all she could, you know. That's all she could give me. We both cried as we said goodbye, and I literally felt on top of the world. This was my life now, and I could create anything I wanted. I could be anything I wanted, and something in me knew that I would make some big things happen. You just know, you know. I always said to myself, God didn't put me through all this shit for me to just not be someone or not do something. So I'm blessed that I had that. I had the best internships. I helped start the first black publications at my PWI with 97% white students and only 3% of color. 97% white students, only 3% of them were student of colors. Not black, not Hispanic. <laughs> 3% all of us collectively as one. And that's why I think it's so interesting when people say, why do they let people of color, black kids go to school for free? It's never an even playing field. Most of the universities and schools in the United States of America are predominantly white. So also the general population, the American population, there's 86% white people, I believe 86% white people, and 6% black people. And then you keep continuing going down that spectrum, it gets lesser and lesser. That's why when I, say, when, when I see people say send people back to their country, I'm just like, there literally is enough room for all of us here. Like America is very, very, very white. <laughs> 
Anyway, back to it. I went to the Donald Trump convention and the Hillary convention my sophomore year, first semester. Am I wrong? No, I went to the Hillary convention, Donald Trump convention the summer going into my sophomore year. I even wrote an essay about it and it was it was the first time in my life someone told me that I was an exceptional writer. You see, I write for myself in my free times, but I never showed people what I actually wrote. Always felt like no one cared what I had to say and I honestly always just thought I wasn't good enough. I always thought that my shit sucked. It's that imposter syndrome, you know? We were always in survival mode. So my mom sometimes didn't have the time to sit down and say, babe, you're great at writing. When I was in class, my professors often told me that the story I reported didn't seem real or they weren't good enough. I struggled in school. My first documentary was The Lack of Diversity in Makeup for Darker Skin Women. This was post-Rihanna launch, so you know this is a big deal, and a lot of makeup brands started falling into play because a black woman came along and said, this isn't fair, I'm creating shades for every single person. And if you remember how amazing that time was, then you know. You know how powerful that was. Shout out to Bad Gal Riri, because you know. You know it meant something. It meant something to my darker complected friends. It meant something. It meant something. Like, literally, it did. And for me to finally find makeup that I don't have to mix up to make it right for me, it meant something for them. I presented this presentation to my professor at American University, a white older man, I think that's just important for me to put that in here, who allowed my entire white class to ridicule me. This isn't real, they said. I don't believe this. Janelle, this wasn't the assignment you were supposed to find a good story. To me, this was a good story. So I did what most student of colors do. I assimilated. I didn't persevere. I curled and I assimilated. I bit down on my tongue and I made the cheesy, corny news stories that they wanted. Memorials, the, the Amazon bookstore that came to Georgetown, those kinds of groundbreaking things. I was so afraid. I, don't, I can't explain it. Um, something in me died. Because the journalism that we see in the media, it doesn't necessarily reflect us. So if I could be the person that changes that, that, that's a dream of mine. And it took me a long time just to get to this point of thinking that I could be someone that people cared to listen to. I hated American University. I didn't fit in with the black kids. I didn't fit in with the white kids. I didn't know much about black history. I mean, I went to school in Texas, and they're also banning the history of slavery here. So there's also that. I was taught that the Black Panther Party was radical and, and, and aggressive when that's not the case at all. The black students I went to school with were often elite and had parents that worked in politics. I had a single mom with an eccentric personality who was still struggling to find a place back home for my sisters. I struggled with the dynamics. I have a bed to sleep in, I have a dorm, but my sisters don't, my mom doesn't. And if you're an old, oldest child, you already know how that goes. As an oldest child, you don't get the credit for being the second mom, and oftentimes the husband. I wondered how they were surviving without me. I didn't miss home. I think I missed the trauma. When you've lived in chaos so much, you become addicted to it. How could you not? That's all you've ever known. I think what's interesting is the way that life shifts you, breaks you, pulls you, destroys you, grounds you, pick you up, and do it all over again. Life is an emotional roller coaster that I've tried so hard to get off of, even going to extreme measures of thinking that I just don't deserve to live. We're getting real real in here. <laughs> my time in college, my time at American University was difficult. 
I became even more of a loner than I was in co- than how I was in high school. I wouldn't leave my room for days. I only had maybe three or four friends, maybe even two on a good day. Well, maybe even two on a hmm, maybe even two on a good day. Let's just say that I couldn't connect. I didn't understand people. Um, I didn't understand peace. It was like I was backwards. Like I was just shaken upside down. I should know peace. I should know peace, but I only knew survival. I was always in survival mode, and sometimes I, s- I still am, but because I'm able to recognize it, I can pull myself out of it. My first year, I was called to the office for not paying my tuition at American. I had no idea what these folks were talking about. I literally called my mom on the phone, and I was just like, um, Mom, <laughs> they're about to kick me out of school because I haven't paid. Like, what's going on? I was like crying and crying and she just started praying on the phone and then speaking in tongues on the phone. It's it's funny when I think about it now. She was a praying woman and still is. I wrote a nine page letter to the school begging and apologizing. And I, they said, why didn't you pay that? Why didn't you pay? And this is the first time in my life I ever told my story. I don't care. I think sometimes you have to kind of use the trauma cart to kind of get ahead um, and I don't care what anyone has to say. Like I said, it's not an even playing field. What am I supposed to go in there and just say, oh, my mom forgot to pay. No, my mom didn't pay because we're poor and we're broke and we don't have it and we barely even have a place to stay. So I'm going to say that and just see what happens. And they ended up giving me a full ride scholarship. And I think what also ha- helped with that was that my GPA was absolutely outstanding. My, I was always a smart kid. Okay. I probably didn't, you know, pay attention that much. I was a little rough. I was very much to myself, always in my head, but I was a smart kid. My outstanding scores gave me a full scholarship in my mom's prayers, honestly, in God. I am a firm believer in God. God keeps me grounded. I was on a high, you know, deep down, though I missed my family so much. You know, living in D.C. away from home, I was 1,548.7 miles away from my family which means I was 23 hours and four minutes away by driving. And because I was always broke, I spent a lot of time walking. And if I needed to walk my ass back to Texas, it would take me 520 hours. Yeah. (laughs) This is not looking right for your girl. So I got a job, three of them to be exact, one babysitting, one at a private school, and the other one editing and writing papers. I told you guys I'm a writer. That's what I do. So if I can try to make some extra cash and some of these rich kids at my school I'm gonna do it (laughs) although I missed my family so much I hated the guilt I felt when I went home so I often didn't go however this one Thanksgiving I went home this was my sophomore year my mom had a nice apartment a really nice apartment to me it was nice you know when you come from nothing and you get into something it was nice it was a three-bedroom it was nice mom had a good job we were we were living large the apartment had a mold problem and my sister caught tonsillitis from it the one that punctured her spleen she's been through a lot too and the energy in that space was just so bad everyone was suffering and I think sometimes when you leave, leave in a toxic environment you don't really realize how bad it is until you come back after being gone for a while like literally that Thanksgiving, I was in a car accident, another one, with some friends, and I broke my hip. <laughs> I, I still have to process it till this day. I was immobile. I was no longer the star athlete. 
I was no longer the cross country runner who didn't run by choice. I ran cross country because my mom only way was getting me to school was at 5 a.m. barring a friend's car. And what started at 5.30 a.m. was cross country. I would play, I would run track after school because my mom wouldn't pick me up until late. So I also did that. Everything I did in my life was to survive. I learned to run to free myself. You know, despite me not liking the sport, it really gave me discipline. It, it taught me how to free up some space in my mind. I learned to run to free myself, to calm down my mind, to eradi eradicate my thoughts. But the things that grounded me was they were now gone. From here on out, it would be indoor workouts that didn't include fields and grass and meadows. I would be glued to the elliptical. I was not able to run through fields anymore. I was on bed rest for three months, supposed to be on bed rest for six, but we were about to lose our apartment. My mom was going through a mental health crisis again. So I got a job. I got a job at a daycare. I walked to this daycare by our house. Ugh, it was intense. I used to walk to this daycare by our house. And I remember I could feel my um, bone scraping against each other because the flesh hadn't fully formed. I would have to sit down, change diapers, do all this stuff because that was the closest thing to me. And that just felt like such a setback in my life. I was like, fuck, I just got into this great school. I'm going to make some moves. And then this happens. This happens. Where I'm from, not a lot of people li leave their places. And despite me going to a predominantly white high school and having those experiences, it's crazy to say this, and this is no, no clout or anything, but I think a lot of student of colors oftentimes surpass their peers, white peers, when they are in spaces like that. We, not might, we, might, might, we might not be able to surpass them like economically or like society or like, like you know, with racism and stuff and microaggressions, but past them, emotional-wise, we oftentimes surpass them because we literally learn how to adapt. I was so worried about school. I kept thinking to myself, when will I return? I want to go back. I want to go back. I want to go back. But the abuse grew worse. My family was divided. My mom was upset. She would say verbal things, do things. She just was always unhappy. She had been unhappy most of my life. My body had changed. I lost 30 pounds. I dropped down to 115 pounds. Mind you, I'm 5'9". I'm actually 5'8.5", but, you know, 5'9 on a good day. I was useless. At least I, I thought I was. Until I met someone. It's been six years now, so I feel safe to say he ain't going nowhere. This man knows way too much about me, and when someone knows way too much about me, which I do not share all the time, you gonna ride with me until the wheels fall off. <laughs> he entertained me when I was at home. He would pick me up with the biggest grin on his smile. Um, he would walk slowly without, you know, asking me for help because I'm an independent woman. I'd be like, uh-uh, don't touch me, I got this, you know? I mean, I was still a catch despite my limp leg, bad circulation, and thin bones. I was still that girl, you know. He would visit me twice a month at school. <sighs> and people were like, oh, my God, he visits you so much. But I was so depressed. I became codependent. I would walk out of class and walk to my room to cry. 
I was always in pain mentally, physically, and emotionally. I couldn't work how I wanted to work. I didn't know how to rid the stress. I had running. I had, I had writing. I couldn't even write. My mind was so fogged up. I had to get off my meds. And, man, the emotional toll it takes when you've been dependent on something for so long. Diazepam, Tramadol, Codeine. I almost dropped out of college. I hated D.C. I miss it now. But back then, I hated it. I hate the cold. It made my hip hurt. I hated walking, although I used to love it. When I graduated from college, I had the most interesting moment in my life. I couldn't tell if my mom was happy for me or upset. I think, like I said before, sometimes we get addicted to surviving. Sometimes we get addicted to trauma. So anytime there was a big win, it was just like she couldn't cope with it. I've seen this within myself, too. I've noticed it with other people when you're always going through things and you're always dealing with trauma how do you cope with success how do you cope with peace with clarity when all you know is trauma I walked across the stage with my smile so big across my face I can't even explain it my cheeks literally felt like they were just gonna burst after graduating I slumped into the worst postgraduate depression I was literally operating from wins Anytime I won, I felt good. I had happiness, but I didn't have joy. I didn't have that joy to sustain me. I didn't have that joy to keep me afloat. You need joy to get through life. Happinesses are cute. It's a small moment of euphoria, but happiness doesn't last. It comes and it goes, and what you need is joy, and I didn't have joy. I didn't, I didn't have that. I graduated. I didn't know what I was going to do in my life. I didn't want to work in politics. I didn't want to get the job at at NBC. I didn't want to work for times. I didn't want to do any of that. I didn't want to. I didn't want I didn't want for anything. I literally wanted to just disappear and go wherever I could, travel the world, do something. Do something. I needed to stay home. I needed to be close to my doctor's appointment for my hip, my physical therapy, those kinds of things. So I moved back home. I moved in with my boyfriend. We got a nice townhouse. I slumped into the darkest depression I've ever been in. I spent six months in my bed, two years of that in isolation, two years too long being alone, two years too long not pursuing anything. So those two years I spent there, I literally ended up writing my book to all the people I love before loving me. And I removed so much. I ripped out the pages. I threw them apart. I didn't show anyone. I said, it's not good enough. I don't want anyone to read this. I dismantled it. I made it soft. I made it sweet. I made it cute. I didn't put in the things that I wanted to put in. Even though I didn't put in the things that I wanted to put in, I said, God, I'm going to let this be my test run. And it became a best-selling book. Two categories on Amazon. Self-help and abuse. Self-help and poetry. And even after selling books everywhere and even after it becoming a number one bestseller I still was not happy I still didn't think it was good enough I didn't think I was good enough I was suffering I was suffering so badly I was getting these messages saying your book has helped me narcissism I never knew I had narcissism narcissism in my life the the way that you explain this it makes so much sense to me oh my gosh like I, I thought I was the only one being a first generation college graduate is so hard I needed this book I'm buying this for everyone I could not accept the praise it was too much it was too much and now I am so 
I look back on that time and I literally shoved myself into depression. Not shoved myself into depression. I shoved myself into therapy. I went to therapy every week. I took some acting classes to help relieve some stress and that helped a lot because I love acting. I, I wrote I wrote personal essays about everything, every traumatic experience that was happening to me because all these traumatic experiences had seemed to morph into one and I couldn't separate them. I came up with year-long plans for myself, but I separated the, the year-long plans into three months. So January, February, March, I would focus on mental health, getting in shape. I would focus on reading more books, focus on my podcast, writing out that. And then the following three months, I would work on the execution of all of those things. I was preparing myself for my next blessing. Right now in my current state at 26 years old, I feel like I am on one. I feel like I am going to continue to level up. I still deal with depression and anxiety and stuff, but I think the fact that I'm able to acknowledge it and I see it and I notice it, it has helped me tremendously. Some books that I highly recommend, obviously, is number one to all the people I love before loving me. There's that. Number two, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do by Amy Morin. That's an amazing one. And number three, Healing the Daughters of Narcissists. Will I Ever Be Good Enough? That's another one. I read these books, and they absolutely, completely changed my life. Um, there's so much more to my story, but I think this is just a glimpse of who I am. This is just what I wanted to share. This is what I wanted you guys to know. I didn't get to dive as deep because... I don't know. I think there's a beauty in everyone not knowing too much about you. Just the surface. I don't want to share what exactly what's at my core until I'm ready to. And once I'm ready to tell my story a little bit more, then I'll do that. But my name is Janelle Roberts. I hope you guys really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for listening to, to the All the People podcast. As I said so many times, I was struggling back and forth between calling it the FOD podcast. But then I was like, you know what? Let's morph it into To All the People I Loved podcast not to all the people I love to all the people podcast an extension of my book to all the people I love before loving me let's make that the name of the entire podcast and let's make the season the FOD season the first only indifferent season and here we are and we're going with it and we're running with it and I just feel so honored and I just feel so blessed to be here with you there are so many amazing women that are on here, and I hope they move you. I hope they change your life. I hope they, they create a shift in you. My name is Janelle Roberts. You guys have a good one.